Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Michael McFall. I'm the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'm delighted to welcome you to Hoover Capital Conversations. Capital Conversations is an ongoing series featuring discussions between those who generate the ideas that enable a free society and those who turn them into actionable policy. We invite you to listen and participate in discussions between our issue experts and policymakers as they consider solutions to some of our most difficult problems. Today, we'll be talking to Congressman Peter Meyer. As part of the discussion, we will be taking audience questions and encourage you to submit yours to the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. So let me get started first with a brief introduction from Congressman Meyer. We're meeting at a pretty crazy time, Congressman. Uh, I think when we both signed up for this, we did not know the moment we would be in uh, concerning the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Uh, Congressman Meyer is a fourth generation West Michigander. Did I say that right? Uh, born and raised in Grand Rapids. After graduating from high school, Peter's first step on his path of purpose was spending a year at the United States Military Academy at West Point, soon thereafter enlisting in the Army Reserves. In 2010, he deployed to Iraq as a non-commissioned officer, setting aside his studies to serve as an, with an intelligence unit at joint U.S.-Iraqi bases in the Baghdad area. After leaving Afghanistan, Peter pursued an MBA at NYU, New York University, then returned to Michigan to work on urban redevelopment and real estate. He was sworn in as a congressman for Michigan's third congressional district in January 2021 and serves on the committees for foreign affairs, homeland security, and science, space, and technology. Congressman Meyer is also a member of the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus. Uh, caucus excuse me. Welcome, Congressman Meyer. We're excited for this conversation today. Thank you, Ambassador. Pleasure to be here. So as I alluded to, um, literally even in the last 24 hours, our script has changed for this call today. Um, just to kind of level set for folks not uh, watching as closely as I uh, am these days and Congressman Meyer, we are on the verge, uh, we are, let me, let me be precise. President Putin of Russia has at least prepared to launch what would be the largest conventional war in Europe since 1939. Doesn't mean he has made that decision, and we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but as of today, he has roughly 150,000 soldiers uh, on all sides of the Ukrainian borders, including on the Belarusian-Ukrainian border. He also has uh, his ships um, uh, on the sea, uh, to the southeast corner of Ukraine. Um, and by all accounts, including from just Secretary Austin just a few hours ago, uh, those troops are on ready uh, alert and they have the capability to launch a major military uh, intervention. Now, we did hear earlier this week, or maybe it was last week, it's blending together to me, that there was some intelligence that suggested that the launch date for this uh, intervention was going to be yesterday. February 16th, uh, that didn't happen. And that's an interesting question, Congressman Meyer, for you as a former intelligence specialist. Uh, was it wrong, I, and I don't know the details, maybe you do, uh, share them with us if you can. Was it wrong for the United States to leak that kind of point information? What do you make generally of the use of declassifying um, a sensitive uh, intelligence uh, it seems to me that this is a, a rather aggressive strategy that the Biden administration is using. And help us understand 
how that might be useful or not for trying to deter Putin's uh, actions or at least to change his calculations. Yeah, well, I'll start off with the, the leaking of information. Now, I think the assumption is that this is all sanctioned leaks, that the yes. goal here is to create um, that generalized sense of we know what you're doing, we are watching and kind of denying Putin the opportunity to undercutting potential plays that he might have, right? Whether that's misinformation, false flags, um, that we are seeing those strategies being prepared and are telegraphing that so that it is you know, known ahead of time so that if that's the script he plays, uh, denying him the ability to, to claim that this was legitimate and, and at least delegitimizing it in the eyes of the broader world, even if within Russia, within their information um, networks and, and degrees of control there on the official you know, state media or otherwise through the censorship of, of more private networks, you know, they may still be under that impression. Um, again, I, I said from the beginning that, that that's the assumption that this is sanctioned. I think, right. you know, trying to trying to control that information, um, being knowledgeable of which leaks are sanctioned or where there might be miscommunication as those leaks are occurring, uh, you know, that getting back to that date of the 16th, I think that's still a question that I have. Um, and, and as you alluded to, things are changing so rapidly that it's hard to know what the ground truth is or what the strategy is at any particular minute. Now, what I think we all have to understand is that Putin is sophisticated. You know, Russian intelligence services are sophisticated. Um, we may think that we have trying to figure out what may be valid information that we're receiving versus what is the information they know they're putting out over networks that we can detect and, and you know, kind of playing into are, are we playing into their hand or are they playing into ours, I guess, from a from a top level standpoint. Right. Um, and, and so to your point of whether or not this is a good strategy, um, I mean, that's going to be dictated by the final outcome, right? If Putin ends exactly. up debating and he's able to do so um, and doesn't feel that this was dissuasive in any way, shape or form, then it was not a good strategy. And we may have burned uh, either burned some sources or given them a better understanding of what type of access and, and collection methodologies that we have. So, you know, like anything else, you know, we won't know until kind of the final turn has occurred in you know, whether the strategy has been effective. That's a great point. Um, and as I remember, I served in the government for five years, uh, three at the White House and two in Moscow. And I remember you don't get any points for trying. Uh, you get points for results. And we're, it's way too early to judge the results of this particular rather new strategy that they've attempted. And I want to be clear, and you correct me, help me uh, use the precise words. I should not have used the word leak. Uh, that's a, I don't think it's ever in America's national interest for, for intelligence to be leaked without it being um, declassified in a purposeful way by our government. Um, and I, I, sh I should have been, I was a little sloppy with my language there. I, I, won't, I won't push back on the semantics. I think, I think leak is kind of the right word if it's oh, okay. Not you know, if it's coming through, if it's even if it's officially, I think what we're talking about and what I assume we're talking about is officially sanctioned, yes. you know, dissemination through kind of unofficial channels, right? Not coming right. from a press release, not coming right. from, a, you know, a solid statement, but kind of getting into the ether and getting into uh, the media more broadly. But but again, I think the, the challenge is trying to determine what is officially sanctioned and what is not officially sanctioned. And, you know, I'm a pretty astute observer of who's talking to what reporters. <laughs> yes. and, you know, even then, you know, it's hard for me to tell uh, because if it's not officially sanctioned, then you have the, the, the issue of muddying the waters a little bit, which, you know, my 
trying to pick apart what I learned in what setting. And so I'm not sharing anything I shouldn't have. Right. I shouldn't. Um, but, you know, the information may be disclosed that reflected a consensus that's no longer accurate. And, and the kind of the more lead time between someone learning something and saying it externally, um, you know, that widens the opportunity for, you know, things to change in the middle and, and for messages to get stepped on, frankly. That's a great point. I think people need to really uh, think about that and also think about your other point, Congressman. Uh, there's two playing this game, not one. Uh, Putin's, uh, you know, he's been an intelligence officer most of his life. Nobody ever retires from the KGB, by the way, everyone. They, 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 that's one of their jokes among themselves. Uh, and he's quite you know, familiar and astute at playing this game and reacting and, and changing things, changing even their own messaging, including using leaks and, and intelligence as well. I think we, sh- we need to re- think of that always. Let's, let's pivot a little bit to the broader goals that, that, that Putin is um, uh, pursuing here. I, I, you know, I've worked on Russia a long time for a good chunk of my career. I met Putin in 1991. That's how old I am. Um, wrote my first article warning about Putin as an autocrat in March of 2020. Uh, and, you know, for a, a, a few years, um, uh, I was up close and personal. I got to see him interact with our government leaders uh, when I worked in the government. And when I look at his goals, uh, I do not think that just stopping NATO, uh, Ukraine's uh, aspirations to, to joining NATO is, is actually, I don't think it's, it's his primary goal at all. Uh, I also think, by the way, President Putin fully understands that he has invented that as a, a crisis today and put 150,000 troops to make it a crisis. We weren't debating Ukraine's membership to NATO uh, even just several months ago, even several years ago, for that matter. He's the one that brought that on the table, not us. But Congressman, when I look at some of his broader goals, you know, I think he does have a big agenda here. Um, you know, he thinks that what happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the 30 years after it, and that the kind of international system that we helped to put in place was unfair. We took advantage of Russia's weakness. He wants to rewrite those rules. He also wants to bring together the Slavic peoples. He, he wrote a long article, by the way, with footnotes and everything, just so everybody knows, 6,000 words, I believe. And let's be clear, he didn't write it. Somebody wrote it for him, but his name's on it. Um, talking about how Ukraine is not even a real country. They're just part of the, the Slavic nation. Uh, so he wants to reunite them. And then fundamentally, when I look at Putin, I think that the real threat to him is not NATO expansion, it's democratic expansion. Uh, and the fact that Ukraine is a democracy is what uh, threatens him. Most certainly when I served in the government and dealt with him, it was people demanding democracy, be it Ukraine, uh, in, in the, the Arab uh, world in 2011, the Arab Spring, and in his own country when there were massive demonstrations in 2011. So I see this as a big, long challenge. But I have to say, and now I want to hear your perspective on both the, the diagnostics, if you have any disagreements with me or, or things you want to add, please add them. But also tell us how your constituents think about this threat. And, and so that's me as a, as a professor and the Hoover Fellow. How do, how do your constituents think about this? And how do we explain, if you agree that this threat is real, uh, do a better job to explain to the American people why they should care? 
Oh, okay. there, there's a lot there. And, yes. and I will you know, just say from the outset, I've spent far less time in Russia than you have, Mr. Ambassador. I've um, you know, been there a few times. I have I've kind of friends that have uh, been that I've been kind of following uh, how they've been reacting, especially those involved in the uh, in various efforts. Um, if I'm looking around the globe, you know, the, the through line between Putin's, you know, activities between, you know, Xi's, you know, um, you know, kind of continuing threatening of, of Taiwan, um, between the, the expansion of Iranian and Shia influence throughout the Middle East, um, the, the, the kind of Sunni extremists trying to reprise a broader, you know, notion of a caliphate, you know, there's this mixture of, of nostalgia, uh, but also a sense of a wound or of, um, of, of being belittled, of being diminished, that they you were once great. You know, the, the empire used to extend so far, and now that that has come crashing down. And, you know, the West is a very convenient and amorphous, um, you know, uh, scapegoat for their own, you know, failures to maintain or, or kind of continue uh, that expansion or protect the territory they had once held. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're kind of butting up against leaders who view themselves as world historical figures, you know, in, in the sense of, of history, right? Not just the contemporary, but wanting to cement and mark their place in the world. Uh, and that, I think, both has an impact internally to their own psyche and how they view things, but also is a very helpful framing device, you know, to motivate and rally a nation around a goal and help them overcome whatever short-term inconveniences or short-term, you know, suffering they may survive. It's a way of, you know, of, of reframing grievances that could otherwise be directed at their own government leaders and pushing those outward. So I think when it comes to how Putin views things, you know, I'm, I'm not in his head, but I think that sense of both the the fear of encroachment, and, and to your point, I mean, nobody in the West was really talking about Ukraine joining NATO. Now, Ukraine would mention that from time to time. Um, you know, it, it seemed it was slightly provocative rhetoric, but also something that an independent country should have every right to do. Uh, right. And you know, I think Ukraine also has a very valid reason to feel snubbed. You know, after the the um, of the memorandum they signed in 1992, where basically we all guaranteed their territorial sovereignty, and that didn't stop Putin's little green men from coming in and annexing Crimea and right. uh, and destabilizing the Donbass. So, you know, Putin both, I think it's it's both a useful punching bag. It's a, a way of potentially directing, making it seem like he's defending, you know, the the Russian world, even if it's not Russia, right? It's right. on those native Russians, the Russian language speakers in Ukraine. Um, so he's, he's kind of being the good guy, the, the good Samaritan, protecting their people, even outside their border, uh, while at the same time gaining a degree of credibility and influence that a country the with a, a GDP smaller than Spain, you know, is able to marshal a far greater position on the world stage, much more in line with what they experienced during the Cold War when they were arguably a legitimate superpower relative to today when, you know, the greatest asset they have is the ability to project a degree of, of destabilization, you know, via their military. Um, you know, I think there may also be a useful function in all the focus focusing on, on Ukraine, um, you know, the prior actions in Georgia, 
can also serve to distract what a lot of the uh, private military companies, you know, the Wagner Group uh, and, and those type of mercenaries are doing throughout Africa to project a greater degree of influence, right? If you can't be a producer, you know, you can be a spoiler and regardless, you know, you're kind of forcing your way to have a seat at the table, whether or not you deserve it in the first place. Fantastic points. So there's so many things I would want to build on. I know we, we want to uh, switch to uh, open it up for Q&A in a moment, but I want to build on something I think that was quite profound that you just said. Uh, uh, you use the word through line, thinking about these other countries in the world. Uh, and I think there is a lot of wisdom there. Uh, all those countries you mentioned, China, Persia, their former empires, uh, they have grievances from the past. You know, China, 100 years of of you know humiliation, and now they're back. Um, and but there's one more piece that's interesting, at least with respect to the China-Russia comparison. Uh, their grievances about sovereignty. Uh, they are autocracies, at least, and that's that's my language. And you you know, if you want to choose a different language, please do so. But Russia's an autocracy. China's an autocracy, and the the threats they are making uh, with respect to sovereignty of other places are democracies. Taiwan is a democratic uh, system of government. Ukraine is a democratic system of government. Um, but there are some people that say in our country now, and this is both in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, and congressmen just say, you know, I have students that say this. Uh, it's like, why do we care? Um, that's far away. Uh, let, let Russia have a veto over Ukraine. Let them have a sphere of influence there. Why should we be worried about them joining NATO or not? And, you know, I sense there's a bit of an overhang. I, 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 again, as somebody teaches, uh, you know, at Stanford and interacts with young people every day, um, they said, well, we made mistakes in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I'm, I'm purposely invoking those countries because of your experience there. Uh, we just need to pull back. And who are we to, to talk about democracy and autocracy? It's really just about power. And let's just everybody have their own sphere of influence and we'll be better off. What's your response to those kinds of arguments? And I want to underscore, you can find these arguments in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party today, including some of your colleagues in, in Congress. Well, and, and I feel like um, th this may be a gratuitous plug, and but Arthur Vandenberg, who's from Grand Rapids, uh, was the Republican senator, and I'm saying gratuitous plugs. My dad actually wrote a biography of him. Oh my goodness, that's not gratuitous, that's fantastic. But, but he, uh, I'm gonna tweet that out to my followers uh, right after this call. I did not know that fact. Thanks for sharing that. Go on, please. Yeah, Vandenberg's a very important person in this history. Well, and, and precisely, I mean, Vandenberg really bringing the Republican Party from being isolationist in the pre-World War II period to embracing, you know, a, an American role in the world and being formative in the creation of the United Nations and NATO uh, in the Marshall Plan. Um, you know, I think there. You know, World War II really underscored we don't have the option to step back, right? You step yes. back, we may have oceans on either border, um, but if if enemy powers, if um, if you know autocracies, if dictatorships, if fascist regimes, you know, in that case, if they take over the world, um, very quickly the world gets small, and our ability to you know operate within it gets constrained, and it's only a matter of time. Now, uh, Russia today is not on par with uh, you know, Germany of the 1930s in terms of their ability to project force, um, though nuclear power has shortened a lot of that. Hypersonic yes. research has shortened a lot of that. Right. But that, that broader sense, uh, you know, I feel like 
we take for granted the rules-based order and the degree to which it not only creates a, a, leving, a level playing field in which democracies can put things forward where there is a more of a sense of a town square, more of a sense of, you know, it isn't simply might makes right. We have other fundamental values that underpin that. We may disagree on what those values are. I mean, some of them are, you know, in, encompassed in the, you know, um, Universal Declaration of the Rights of Man, right? Or right. all of these other kind of foundational philosophical notions. And I think getting back to that earlier point on the through lines between the autocratic regimes and, and democracies, um, you know, the U.S. is very unique in being a democracy that's not founded on on blood. Uh, it's not founded on on religion. It's not founded on you know an, an ancestry. It's it's founded on a, a a philosophical notion you know that can welcome anybody from any part of the world into it as long as you believe and and kind of promote and and are part of that project. You know yes. versus you know those well versus you know the autocracies and the other big distinction is that you know, in a, in a democratic government or a, a more open society, you can, you, you can basically cast blame for why things are not working well on whoever the party is in power right. as a way for the minority party to be able to step up. Now, you don't have that in an autocracy, right? They, right. they need to cast that blame outwards. So when, when I think of folks who, who make that argument of why should we care, you know, in some ways it's very abstract, but in another way, you know, this, the, the world tilting against the West, against open societies, against places that have uh, fundamental protections for individuals, where it isn't just kind of a, a Hobbesian state of nature, um, that has served to benefit us, that has served to make us a superpower, that has served to gain us alliances that then lower the cost of making sure our collective interests are protected. And, and so, you know, if Ukraine falls, we're not necessarily going to see an immediate impact. There could be a spike in oil prices. There could be, um, you know, obviously a significant humanitarian and, and kind of civilian casualty catastrophe. You know, Americans will probably be killed in the middle of that. You know, all of that is, is terrible on, on that end. Um, but, you know, the question is, how does that impact our daily lives here at home? And that impact won't be felt immediately, but that erosion of the United States standing in the world, you know, what benefits it brings to us in, in trade, in, in travel opportunities. Um, I mean, I think I was somebody who, when I was working in Afghanistan, I was very well aware of the benefits and drawbacks to having a blue passport. Um, you know, the fact that we can be safer in the world because of that is, is I think, again, something we don't appreciate that we very readily take for granted because we've never known anything but that. That's a fantastic point. In, in academia, we call it the counterfactual. You have to think about the world after 1945 without all those rules of the game that you talked about. And, and we have some historic experiences before World War II. I, I urge, uh, I we will advertise your father's book. Um, and uh, I do think reminding Americans about the debates we had in this country uh, before World War II and even before World I, but especially in that interwar period where we thought, well, what's happening over there? Annexation and some place I've never heard of doesn't bother me. Tragically, we uh, learned that it, it did bother us in a very direct well, who cares way. If Hitler goes in, into the, you know, Anschluss, uh, yeah, Czechoslovakia, right? I mean, where is it? Yeah, why do we care? It's got to do with the price of wheat in Illinois. But right. again, I mean, that, that compounds, right? None of these yes. are discrete events. These are things that build in that, you know, rise. Right to a higher level and 
you know, I would much rather we prevent the, the larger conflict that could come. Great point. I, I know we got to switch the questions, but I want to ask one more because it's actually personally to me very important. And, and I want you to uh, walk us through your thinking on this. You join with uh, Representative Abigail Spanberger from Virginia to push for the reclamation of congressional war powers. Why is this important, do you think, to our democracy? Because we've been talking about our democracy, but especially as we face this increasing aggression from Russia. Uh, and tell us just your thinking on this and, and where it stands today. Yeah, and, and I guess getting back to the earlier point on, on that, that tension, I supported our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now I have been absolutely flabbergasted at the incompetence of this administration when it came to executing that withdrawal. Yes. Um, but you know, the, there's a very big difference in my view between the US finding itself in the middle of somebody else's civil war and right. us making sure that our broader geostrategic uh, incentives and, and benefits are, are not being abused and that we're not letting authoritarians you know, continue expansion, right? A difference between offense and defense between right. something that has a bearing on our strategic national interests and one that doesn't. Um, but, you know, on the question of war powers, um, you know, quite simply, you know, I've spent probably three years between Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, it, Iraq is a combatant, Afghanistan, uh, working in humanitarian aid. You know, the, the amount of, of, the amount of things that aren't followed up on, the amount of questions that aren't asked, the amount of scrutiny that's not given when Congress takes its hands off and just says, well, not our problem, uh, I think has contributed to the rudderlessness of those conflicts and their ultimate futility. You know, if we had an authorization, as, as many of your the viewers may know, uh, whenever we send our troops into harm's way, you know, it either is because of a declaration of war, which we haven't had since you know, the end of World War II, you know, or it's via an authorization for the use of military force, an AUMF. Um, our entire global war on terror, you know, our conflict in Afghanistan, uh, our, our drone strikes throughout you know, um, uh, Africa, you know, the Middle East, uh, and Central Asia, that's all been underpinned by this post 9-11 AUMF passed shortly after the September 11th attacks. When we went into Iraq, we had the 2002 authorization for use of military force. Uh, so the both of those, and, and frankly, the 1991 AUMF for the Gulf War, and even the 1957 AUMF that's still on the books just in case Eisenhower needed to send troops in to, um, to defeat a communist invasion in the Middle East, you know, all of that is still on the books. Um, and now we've obviously seen with the post 9-11 AUMF how what was originally Al-Qaeda and associated forces, you know, such as the Taliban, got expanded to attack groups that didn't exist on 9-11, groups that were actively fighting Al-Qaeda, uh, you know, not arguing those groups weren't worthy of a drone strike, you know, but, you know, it stretched far beyond that original intent. And so in my view, and I think this is a view many in Congress share, you know, the founders gave Congress that power, those powers of war and peace for a reason, you know, as a check on the president as commander in chief, right? So if the president is sending forces into harm's way, there needs to be ratification of that in Congress. And so we can also through those checks and balances through that oversight process, be asking sharper questions of the Pentagon, uh, be asking sharper questions about strategy to that executive, and, and frankly, having to cast votes on whether or not we are affirming you know, that continued support, or if we think that um, that military involvement should end. And, and if you have to cast that vote of whether or not to send men and women, you know, to potentially risk their lives on behalf of the nation, 
there's a gravity there, there's an ownership, there's a degree of accountability that we have not had in the post 9-11 world, because after, after that 2002 AUMF, you know, was, was approved, that was the last time, you know, close to, close to 20 years ago, actually probably 20 years ago this month, was the last time a, a member of Congress voted to continue to send troops into harm's way. Well, thank you for that fantastic answer. By the way, I didn't even know about the 1957 AUMF. So uh, sometimes members of Congress get criticized for not knowing uh, their portfolios. Uh, here's a lot of evidence that we have one, at least that's paying really close attention. And I just, I could not agree more with what you just said. Uh, we need the Congress to be there. We need our representatives who represent the American people to have a voice in this. We need that scrutiny of executives. And that's that's a bipartisan question, right? That's not a Democrat or Republican piece. That's a Democratic, small d Democratic idea. So thank you, Congressman, for your leadership on that. Okay, we have some so for some questions. I want to remind you, if you're just joining us, I'm Hoover Senior Fellow Micah McFall, and this is Hoover's Capital Conversations with Congressman Meyer from Michigan. We'll now take your questions shortly. Please submit your questions at the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Um, and let's start to work through some of those questions now. And I will begin to look through them. Two questions on China, Congressman, um, from Andrew. Uh, the PRC has current history of land grabs. If President Putin is committing a majority of his combat ready forces to the West, he's leaving his eastern flank exposed to PRC interventions. Siberia has valuable minerals, petroleum and natural gas. Should Putin be concerned about a possible PRC land grab in Siberia? And then Steve asks, to what extent do, to what extent do the goals of the China conflict uh, fit with the ambitions of Putin? May these conflicts somehow uh, put constraints on mutual on their mutual cooperation? I garbled that question. I want to and I want to add it, uh, uh, Steve's for Steve. Let me let me ask it in two different ways because there are two different pieces that I think are important. On the one hand, if Putin goes into China into Ukraine, excuse me, does that strain the China uh, Putin? Uh, close relationship. I think everybody would agree that it's become a lot closer recently. But I also want to add the amendment to that question. If, if Putin succeeds and goes in uh, without much resistance, does that embolden Xi Jinping uh, with respect to his um, aspirations and claim to reunification vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan? Yeah, I, I don't think... Um... I mean, whether or not, I think we still have some, some islands that are still disputed between Russia and Japan. Um, so I think Japan would be a more likely, you know, retaking of, of disputed territory than, than probably the Chinese would for the simple fact that if Russia invades Ukraine, they're going to be, you know, punished pretty heavily. They should be punished pretty heavily via sanctions. Um, they're going to have issues on the currency side. Uh, they will need a partner. Uh, and China, frankly, is well positioned to help pick up the mess there. So that's where I would I would see more of a benefit to China and, and a tightening of that relationship than any loosening. Right. Uh, and now, um, if if Putin's invasion of Ukraine steps on uh, the Beijing Olympics and and there's some feeling of being slighted, that could be a different equation. Right. But we have Sunday or the closing ceremony Saturday. Um, so I think that's that's just the one more symbolic aspect of it. But I think, frankly, from many other areas, uh, you know, the, the further 
isolated that Russia becomes, the more they're going to need you know, some assistance and China is well positioned to help them there. Now, we, though we haven't really seen significant, I think that will be that will be economic and that will be with China coming from a position of strength, you know, rather than any deeper, um, you know, sense of alliance. Right. Uh, in terms of emboldening China, I mean, I, there's no doubt that she is looking at the West's reaction to Ukraine and how and if Russia successfully you know, retakes Ukraine. And now I think we're in the, men- just to step back, we're in the mentality of saying, you know, he's either not going to do anything or it's going to be a full-on invasion. And there is a world of possibilities yeah. between the two. So just- Really important point that the Congressman just made. He's got many different options, not just go in or, or not go in, uh, but continue on how they're related. Yeah. I'm curious what you think. Uh, I mean, it, it's going to, it's, going to be the strongest indication yet we've seen, um, I mean, frankly, since 1991, um, of what what does sovereignty mean and, and how important is that? And, you know, we have we have kind of three foundational documents behind our, our U.S.-Taiwanese relationship that were you know, signed with China to basically enforce a, a degree of status quo. Um, you know, we also had, and I forget... I believe it's the Bucharest Memorandum, but I also, it might've been the Budapest Memorandum. Budapest Memorandum, 1994, yes. All right. Uh, The Budapest Memorandum was also a document ensuring the territorial integrity of of the Ukraine. And that's arguably already been violated both with the annexation of Crimea and and, um, destabilization of the Donbass. So, you know, you both see, have the the precedent of, you know, multilateral agreements around a, a situation, but then the degree to which, international pressure has maintained the enforcement of those agreements, even if there aren't, you know, uh, treaty obligations in a, in a proper sense that it would like, such as Article 5 of the NATO treaty, right? There, there isn't necessarily that strength of the self-defense provision. There's much more of a sense of moral suasion and, and kind of browbeating and influence. And the question is, you know, if, if Putin kind of crosses those lines, what is the consequence and what does the West do? Uh, and is that something that China looks at and says, well, that's a, a cost worth bearing to achieve our objective um, of, of reuniting, you know, and making the one China truly a one China rather than uh, this kind of separate sense of systems. I frankly think they were emboldened by how little pushback there was of their soft takeover of Hong Kong. Um, and I think that there's not really anything significantly standing in their way, um, though it is worth it is worth you know you were mentioning earlier that the countries under threat are democracies. You know whether it's in the Taiwanese example and the Ukrainian example. You know democracies can be messy. It's easier to um, th- there's kind of a soft underbelly on the information side of trying to use disinformation of trying to you know spread. Um, propaganda in order to undermine the the strength of that society. Uh, But that also means that you can accomplish your objectives of seizing that territory, you know, through non-military means. It's a great Uh, point. Yes. And and that is, I think, where both the risk is of one of those potential things between doing nothing and full-on invasion that um, Russia may take advantage of. Um, You know, we don't have to look back too far in their periphery. Um, You know, Afghanistan, the the coup that then becomes the invitation for forces to come in, you know, and still kind of has that patina of defense, um, but, you know, is just an invasion by another means. That's a great point. And, and uh, it's, in my view, uh, there's been just in the last 48 hours, some pretty scary things that 
Mr. Putin has said, and his, and his parliament has said, Putin uh, just a couple of days ago said that there's genocide happening uh, in Donbass. Those are the, that's the part where the separatists that he supports are located. And when you hear the word genocide, that's pretty, that, and, and they're mostly ethnic Russians there, uh, in his view, or I don't know if this view, but it's what he's telling his people, that's what's happening. That sounds like a pretext for war. And his parliament, which of course is not, you know, independent of, of the Kremlin, just passed a, a resolution. It's non-binding, but to, to recognize mm-hmm. as independent countries, the two regions in the Donbass, Lugansk and Donetsk, pretty ominous. Uh, that sounds like a pretext for war as well. Uh, let's take a few more questions. Uh, one uh, follow-up from me, and then we'll go back to the list here. Um, uh, you know, there are some, uh, again, uh, commentators in the United States that say we we shouldn't get distracted with Ukraine and Russia because our real the real challenge, some would say the real enemy, the real competitor, you use the noun you want, is China. And that if we get too focused on what's happening in Europe, we'll lose our focus on China. How, how do you, what's your view of that kind of argument? I mean, I think if we're a superpower that can only look at one country or one dynamic in the world at a time. We don't deserve to be a superpower. Um, you know, I, I think one of the biggest flaws in our foreign policy space um, is just the fact that we look at the world, or at least the media has conditioned us to look at the world. And I think that's seeped into um, much of the, the you know, defense, intelligence, and, and foreign policy establishment as a series of problems to solve rather than challenges to manage. And if you look at things as a problem to solve, it's either a problem, you know, or you then feel like you've solved it, or at least there's nothing you can do, and you just kind of walk away and, and forget about it until it becomes a problem again, right? So we have this very, you know, myopic view of the world. You know, we kind of are looking through a soda straw and and forgetting everything around the periphery. So I agree that we shouldn't be, we shouldn't over-index you know, Ukraine relative to China. I think there's a certain, uh, I mentioned nostalgia earlier, but we kind of have the narrative frame set to look at Russia as the boogeyman here. Um, And they're definitely a bad actor. You know, are they behind everything? No, you know, they're not 10 feet tall. Um, But somewhere in that midst, you know, you you both, you have to find the right framing where it's not downplaying, it's not overplaying, you know, textualizing. Um, but I, re- I reject the premise that we can only look at one thing at a time. And, and by God, I hope that our National Security Council and our intelligence agencies and our you know, establishment more broadly isn't just looking at one thing at a time. And I, I just there was something I was going to mention earlier that I think is one of the reasons why Putin feels like he can flood the zone with information or try to con- try to shape the collection narrative is we have become so dependent on signals intelligence relative to human mm. intelligence. And you know if that loses the ability to contextualize or get information that may be outside of a narrative, you know, if every time I pick up the phone, I know somebody's listening in, you know, I both know what I shouldn't be saying on the phone. That doesn't mean that someone's not gonna slip up and say something stupid. But you know, if, my, if I'm Putin, I'm telling all my guys, assume that the U.S. is listening to your, your cell phones. Now, I don't know that, right? But it's... It, it, That's an assumption they're making. Yes, of course. Great point. Taliban commanders in Afghanistan were assuming that. It's probably safe that a more sophisticated adversary would assume that. All right. So that is where it becomes increasingly hard to pick out 
um, and distinguish between information that's being disseminated with the intention of being collected and information that's being disseminated that they don't think is being collected, right? What you say when you know somebody's listening versus what you say when you think they're not. And, and with when you have better human sources, you can better understand and make the distinction between the two. You can understand what the narratives are. You can get that color in that context that you don't get when you know, you're know you coming from 40,000 feet and all you have is the printout in front of you. That is a great point. Uh, subject for a longer conversation, another, we should devote a whole session to that. In fact, my colleague, Amy Ziegart should be the chair. She has a new book called Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. It's a great title. Uh, we'll send you a copy, Congressman, but on this sig signals intelligence versus human intelligence, I could not agree more. Uh, it looks like we only have time for one last question. So I, my apologies for everybody I didn't get to. Uh, Pat, you're going to get the last question. Pat asks, do you believe there's credibility to the belief that NATO is an aggressive international actor, i.e. Libya and the Balkans? Further, does NATO action provide Putin with a valid reason to view Eastern expansion as a threat to his sphere of influence? Well, I'll touch upon the Libya. I mean, I think Putin definitely felt suckered into that one because he didn't oppose at the Security Council initially uh, and what went from being kind of defensive. I think, um, boy, I'm, I'm blanking on the, the city that was really under under siege by Benghazi, uh, Benghazi. Was it Benghazi that they had yeah, the concerns? It was. The yes. Um, obviously, that then became much more significant. Different, a different word for a different time. Yeah. But it was Benghazi. I, I was working at the National Security Council at the time. That's why I remember it well. So Putin, you know, Understandable that autocrats are not fans of regime change. Um, right. you, know, you know, we'll just establish that. Uh, but Putin's a little bit felt suckered, or I think he expressed a degree of, of, of anger and frustration, felt deceived that what was framed to him as, as kind of humanitarian defensiveness, that there was basically just creating this humanitarian corridor to prevent a massacre of, of opposing forces and civilians, you know, spun into, um, you know, implicit NATO involvement in the war and then ultimately the uh, the death of um, of Muammar Gaddafi uh, and, and and not the way that for those of you who know how he died that's not that's basically you know Putin's you know nightmare or any exactly. yes um, you know, that or getting strung up by a light post like in the uh, the Najibullah example in Afghanistan but though so he probably felt a little bit blunted by that I think the broader you know, the Balkans were messier and, and, and I think less of a cohesive narrative um, just because of the strong ethnic component to so much of it were ethnic and religious component. And it was not as, as sort of force on force or or it wasn't necessarily clear and, and a little bit mixed, you know, who was on on sort of the Soviet side with where the Soviet, the, where the then Russia, you know, disintegrated Soviet Union, where their national interests were, uh, though the um, the degree to which many of those states then embrace the West and, and still feel a degree, especially the some of the ethnic minority groups that were um, that were under most threat of, of it will be being genocided, right? I mean, right. under that threat, felt uh, a degree of, of 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 gratitude to the West. I think there's like a you know Colin Powell or a um, uh, you know well there, there's just a lot of a lot of ways in which there was goodwill that was built that Putin probably didn't like. Exactly. Uh, I, I do think it's gaslighting um, the way that Putin has framed everything as being NATO aggression um, when, you know, it is 
you know, he's the one massing troops on borders. Yes. He's the one invading countries and, you know, forming defensive alliances so that borders can be, you know, their sovereignty and, and security can be protected. Um, you know, and then spinning, you know, defense into offense is just a kind of classic framing gaslighting move. Um, the, the idea that NATO is the antagonistic force here, I think is just completely false. It is a, a lie of the highest order. Um, and it is incredibly frustrating to see the receptivity that some have embraced of that argument in the, in the West. And it also gets to this sort of blame America first, or, you know, the, that we are uh, responsible for all the ills in the world. Um, the world doesn't revolve around us. A lot of people have their own problems, you know, just like, you know, it's important to know when you're walking down the street, um, nobody's really paying attention to you. They are not thinking about what you look like. They have their own problems to deal with. You know, we're not the center of gravity. Now we, we are significantly influential, um, but a lot of these, a, you know, a lot of conflicts, and this was the case in Afghanistan, it's like, we're, this is not about us. Now it'll become about us when we insert ourselves in, and then that will change the dynamic. Right. Um, but specifically when it comes to, to NATO, um, you know, I think it's it's selective cherry picking at best to make the argument that NATO is worsening the situation. And if anything, um, you know, we're NATO is standing in the way of Putin wanting to dominate and, and coerce and intimidate countries in Europe. And he doesn't like that because that is a constraint on his expansion and on his you know, attempts to be relevant and powerful in the world once more. Fantastic answer, Congressman. I could not agree more. Um, and I, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Congressman Meyer. I have to say, personally, I am just thrilled that you were uh, sworn in January uh, um, of last year to serve in our Congress. We need uh, people that understand this history in the level of detail that you've had a chance to just sample for the last hour. Uh, so thank you again, Congressman Meyer. Let's have you back. And uh, hopefully we can talk with other Hoover fellows about other aspects of national security with you as well. Uh, for everybody else, you can learn more about this series at hoover.org forward, hoover.org forward slash capital conversations. Thanks for joining us today and hope you'll tune in on Thursday, March 24th, 11 a.m. for a conversation between Hoover Director Condoleezza Rice and Senator Dan Sullivan. I'm Mike McFall from Palo Alto. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.